I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Never, all right, you guys are Lucy McGoosey. I love it, man. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. Marin Axarod. This is Garth Trinidad. This is Jeff Moore. It's D Mike B, and this is Rebel Radio in full effect with a fuck you, Josh. <laughs> Yo, Casper Mattress is changing the mattress industry. They're not only making a better bed to help you get a good night's sleep, but they're also making it so you can just click to buy. You don't have to go to the showroom and deal with the shady salesman trying to hustle you. And if you don't like it, uh, you have 100 nights to try it out in your own home with free shipping and returns. So it's, it's a great mattress. Try it out. Join the mattress revolution. I think I just coined that term. It's a sleepy revolution, but it's a revolution of well-rested people. For a great night's sleep, go to Casper.com, use the code RADIO, that's just for listeners of Rebel Radio, and you get $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. Casper.com, code RADIO, terms and conditions apply. All right, check it out. Rebel Radio is brought to you by LegalZoom.com. Maybe you're starting a business. Maybe you already have a business. I don't know. What do you have? Like a dry cleaner? You got a chain of laundromats? You got a... Uh, I don't know. It, send us a note at Rebel Radio Net on Twitter. Let us know what kind of business you own or are thinking of starting up. And then use LegalZoom for all of your legal needs. It'll save you time and money. We use it for Rebel Radio for all, all the forms we need, NDAs, lease agreements, uh, basically any legal forms we need, we can get them at LegalZoom.com. And they have extras like a three-month trial of QuickBooks Online accounting software. You can get a domain name for a year through Web.com at no additional charge. And uh, you can basically use LegalZoom for any needs related to your business so that you can spend most of your energy on growing your business and not thinking about legal stuff. They've got the business legal plan where you can get free legal advice from independent attorneys licensed in 48 states. And since LegalZoom is not a law firm, you don't pay outrageous legal fees, you just pay a low monthly fee. 
So save time and money starting and running your business at LegalZoom.com. Don't forget to enter Rebel in the referral box at checkout so that Rebel Radio gets our credit for sending you there. Appreciate that. LegalZoom.com. What's up, what's up? Welcome back to Rebel Radio. We're here with part two of Victor Duplay. If you didn't hear Victor's interview last week, I suggest you go back on iTunes and listen to it. It was a good one. So good, in fact, that we bring you the B-side today. If you don't know Victor, he's an international DJ, producer. He was a contestant on BET's Master of the Mix and then came back as a judge on that show. He's going to give us some good lessons that we didn't have time for last week, how he combats burnout, how he makes sure to get honest feedback from people around him when everybody wants to just say nice things to your face and not really give you the real, how he manages his own brand in the face of other people's expectations and not let, not let people take him off track. And he's going to tell us about that one time when he made a beat for Bart Simpson. So before we get into the interview, let's hear our EDM.com track of the week. Here we go. All right, that was Feverkin and Charisma with Folds, our EDM.com track of the week. If you like that one, go to EDM.com, check out the Chill channel, and you'll hear a lot more like it. And now let's get into the interview with Victor Duplay, part two from last week. And I think that the film business has taught me you have to find the best way to maintain mm-hmm. at a high level because... God willing, you're going to have a long life, right? So put yourself in the best position to keep doing this and keep evolving yeah. and, you know, take care of your body, take care of your mind, all these things, and, and, and nurture your relationships because that person is surely going to be in a position to help you later. For or sure. you're, you're surely going to need that person for something that you're going to do. You know, they can be a supporting character in your role in your show or a producer or whatever or Mm-hmm. All, all different kinds of combinations of things I've seen. And that is what I think we've been suffering through in the music business for a long time, is this, this idea that we have to be burnouts. Yeah. And I just don't believe that anymore. Well, yeah, it's weird. I mean, you know, there's, there's definitely this window that you have as, as an artist, right? Certainly, probably more so as an artist than a producer, songwriter, whatever. But if you're up, up front on, on stage, yeah, right? There's definitely this window, and it seems like, yeah, you're either your career's dead or you're dead. Or you're like, best case is that you kind of had your hits and then you get to tour those for the rest of your life and yeah. you get to like put out some new stuff, but it really only goes back to those original fans. Yeah. Right? So when, you know, Cher makes a record now, right, it's for the people that loved her 20 years ago yeah. to keep feeding them, but it, but it's not... You know, it's not really operating as an artist where you're you're constantly kind of mm-hmm. um, having that conversation with fans. It's hard to make a hit, though. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, if you get one, it's sure. great, right? Yeah. 
And if you're like those artists who get 10, 15, 20 hits, that's like unusual. Oh, yeah. It's like it's unprecedented. It's like lightning. Yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think a lot of it is do you or the people that are helping you make these records relate to the moment? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the hardest part. If you if you put yourself in isolation, once you become famous to some degree, you become isolated yeah. that, at that level where you can't walk down the street. And when people don't speak to you honestly anymore, um, you know, I've never be I've never been in a, a superstar status, but I've definitely been popular enough that people start acting differently towards me. Right. Is that right? Yeah. So I know that there are times where even when you don't. Um, even when you are you feel like you are yourself, mm-hmm. there is a false sense of that because people stop telling you the truth. So what was give us like the first big break and, and when the first time you felt that? Well, I, I, it's, it's it's two things. So the first thing is when you when you're most of my the the early part of my career, I was successful as a producer yeah. and songwriter, right? So there's a there's a particular amount of wealth that comes with that. So what what, what was the first kind of hit, or like first big success in that area? Um, the first big success financially or just mm-hmm. yeah. What was like the first check? Well, I, the first the first check I got was I did a song on Teddy Pendergrass's album. Um, that was the first thing. Like I produced, I negotiated, I did all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was really young. Uh, but I, what I was, was the song? It was the song was called um, "I Choose You" and it was on his album "A, a Little More Magic," I believe. Mm. I think that was the last time he had a big hit record. Was that album? Mm-hmm. I was a little too young and naive to know what that was really on any level. It was just like, hey, I got a check. We can pay bills. We can make more music. Right. Right. That's yeah. what it was. I mean, that's that's probably a good way to. Yeah. At the same time, I was doing things like on Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince albums and na- naively not taking credit for it because I just right. didn't know what, you know, we're all homies. and we're yeah, You don't tracks. know the business. Uh, I made. I made the first um, starter commercial with Jeff. Mm. Yo, this is Jazzy Jeff. And how did I get my starter hat to look like this? The Jazzy Jeff breakdown. First you grab the hat. Then you grip the hat. Then you flip the hat. Make sure it's a starter hat. Then you raise the hat. Then you slam the hat. Then you twist the hat. Then you turn the hat. Then you spin the hat. Then you smooth the hat. Hey, don't forget, look for the star. Mm. I made a song with Bart Simpson. Oh, shit. On on Bart Simpson's album. These are things that generated millions of dollars. Yeah. And I didn't really know to take credit for it. Um, But, you know, when I started to become an artist, I think is when you notice that there is a particular behavior that people say they hate, 
but they are kind of addicted to that they like about artists in a weird, mm. twisted way. Okay. Right? So me, I feel like I'm a real cool, peaceful kind of dude. But when when someone hears an artist or if they see your persona and if my marketing is like I'm this mysterious kind of guy and my songs are all about women and sensuality and all these kinds of things, they're thinking I'm going to come in there with this nasty attitude and try to bang everybody's wife, right. basically, right? Yeah. So if I don't do that, it's almost like a letdown. Mm-hmm to them if i don't come in there with a supermodel or some exotic woman or what have you yeah. they look at me like what's going on what's really the deal you know and for, for many years every time i did a press junket they would never ask me about music mm. it would always be about how many women i slept with uh-huh. you know what's it like to be an international playboy you know but I'm I'm coming from the music. I didn't right. understand this whole thing of, you know, sell that, put that out there. Right. You know, and actually there was a there was a famous DJ. I don't want to put him out there because it, I, it wasn't public. But <laughs> he told me one time, he said, man, I've been watching you, watching your career. At this time, I was like in every magazine all over the world. Um, he said, I want you to be careful. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, if you're if you don't force them to talk about your music they won't mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they're only going to talk about who you sleep with yeah and that's going to be who you are and i was like wow check that out because i wasn't really aware yeah i was feeling it at the time but i wasn't aware so i mean that to me was great. the first kind of uh of of thing and then you know it becomes cloudy why do these people like me you know, do they like me because I made that sexy song or do they like me because they think I'm beautiful because yeah. I, cause I'm the person and I think I am. Does that start to mess with your head, like, creatively? Uh, it doesn't mess with your head creatively until you get to the point where you're struggling financially mm. or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you're really heady, I mean, you've, I'm, I'm not the only artist that's, that said that the, the, the lifestyle of an entertainer is very lonely. Of course. You know? The amount of time you spend traveling and in hotels and alone at a certain point in time can get to you, right? So even if you have uh, some type of lover at your call, Mm -hmm. it isn't love, Mm -hmm. you know? And if you become conscious of that, then that's a a struggle because the people that love you or want to love you are sort of envious of your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So they see, hey, I'm in town for a day. Tomorrow I have to go to Paris. And you're kind of saying, like, tomorrow I have to go to Paris. And they're yeah. like, what? Yeah. What are you bragging? And you're like, no, I really, I really got to go to Paris tomorrow. <laughs> and you're thinking, you're not thinking, like, pastries and right, right, right. You're thinking, like, on Charles de Gaulle security. Oh, shit. Yeah, you're not going to the Eiffel Tower. And... <sighs> not all that. Right. You know, uh, all the smoke. Right. Oh, man. Like, oh this is going to be awful, you know? Yeah. They don't, they can't see you. They, of course. They don't, they don't have that experience. You've been, I've been to Paris so many times. I always tell people, it took me like 15 times to go to Paris to like it. Mm-hmm. Now, how many people can say that? You know, most of the people have in this mind that, yeah, you're supposed to fall in love with Paris. I want to go. I'm going to Paris. It's going to be so amazing. It's this amazing thing. And I got there. I was so unimpressed. <laughs> I was like, this dirty ass place is what yeah. everybody's been talking about. Are you kidding me? This is it? 
The Eif- that's it? The Eiffel Tower? Now we're coming from the States where everything is 17 times bigger mm-hmm. in, in most major cities right. in the United States. Sure. The parks are as beautiful all over the East Coast <coughs> as Paris. Like I, I'm one of those people that's like, you're not going to, you're going to find pretty much everything beautiful in the world somewhere in the United States. If you see the United States is as beautiful, it's not to diss anything else, but it's mm-hmm. not to like overly celebrate yeah. anything either. So it, it was always weird. But then on that 15th time though, it happened. It was like, oh, it 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 is about this dirty, grimy thing. Uh-huh. That's really what it is because yeah. in the midst of that is all this amazing subculture. And when you grab a hold of that, then there's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. You know, secret trap door entrances to places and people just being free and open and, and expressive. Like, that's amazing, mm-hmm. you know? But it took me a long time to get that. And everyone else that you know just thinks that every time you go somewhere, it's amazing. You know, and now it's probably even worse with Instagram where everybody just takes that one second. For sure, right. You know, and yeah. all these girls on yachts. Yeah. Hey, I'm in the Maldives. <laughs> What they really need to do is turn the camera around and show the old fat dude that paid for that. (laughs) That's not so sexy. (laughs) But that's more like the truth, you know? When you go to the south of Europe in the summer, you see a lot of super sexy girls over there with a lot of big, fat, ugly dudes, you know, who are paying for those trips. So, um, you know, it's just those moments of trying to juxtapose your amazing life that you have that you don't sit behind a desk and you get to travel and do what you love versus the, the challenges of that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, finding a companion who will support you through that, you know. Uh, how to deal with that moment you fell in love with that girl in that random place, but you don't know if you're ever going to see her again. Mm-hmm. Like, that's trippy, mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes yeah. you come across somebody and, and in five days, that's the most ex- amazing thing ever. And then as a as an artist that's fuel so now right. i'm charged up for a year i'm thinking about yeah, that yeah. cafe and you know that sure. that that place she took me that mountain range that was like a secret road we had to get to or what have you and wow i'm thinking she's totally in love with me and this is great and you know occasional text occasional facetime what have you blah 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 and you go back a year later and she's married with a kid mm-hmm. and you're like what the hell and she's like dude that was a year ago yeah Right. And we're sure. we're like FaceTime buddies or right. whatever. And and you're a super lover, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you got girls all over the place. So, and you're like, but wait a minute. But I, my heart, <laughs> you know, that it gets weird that yeah. way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. OK, let's take a short intermission. I'm going to play you a little bit more of my interview from last week with Casper Mattress Chief Operating Officer Neil Parikh. He's given us a little bit of insight into his career and what Casper's all about. In our segment here, he's talking about Casper Labs, which is a really interesting kind of hybrid of R&D and, and marketing where they're building deep relationships with customers and turning them into evangelists. Check out what he has to say. Yeah, so Casper Labs was born from our customers wanting to try out our products. Um, and help us beta test them. So we had 
We've always used human-centered design, which is the idea that you know, if you watch people, you kind of understand what problems that they're having, that you can build much better products than just assuming you, you think you know what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'd always had tons of customers involved in the product development process, but we said, hey, there's got to be a way that we can formalize this, get people's ideas, and then also explore things that are maybe on the further edge of, um, of what what, what's available today, right? So Cashflow Labs is a program where we've got over 20,000 customers that have signed up to do R&D projects with us. So whether that's trying out new products, giving us feedback, um, sometimes telling us about their sleep habits in very intimate ways, so sending us photos and videos so we can understand what's going on in people's lives. Um, sometimes, you know, tracking their own sleep and sharing that data with us. It's just a way for people that are evangelists around sleep to be very much more deeply connected to us. Um, and that's part of our commitment to R&D is that, you know, unlike mattress companies that, you know, some company just launched this new, like, you know, platinum gel cooling memory foam that sleeps, you know, 2% cooler or something because mm-hmm. that's a great marketing message to, to use at a store, right? And we're the, we are the antithesis of that. Like, that doesn't matter to anyone. That's just marketing gimmicks. Sure. What we're about is in real life, how do we get customers to tell us what, what they need? Um, and how can we solve those kinds of problems? Yeah, that's great. That was Neil from Casper dropping a little knowledge on us about the Casper Labs project. If you want to find out more about sleep habits and uh, what you can do to improve your own sleep, check out Casper Labs online. And of course, support the show, go buy a Casper mattress, casper.com, use our code radio, save $50 off the purchase of a mattress. And now back to my interview with Victor Duplay. So uh, I know we're running out of time, and I got a couple of things I, I want to make sure we get to. Mm-hmm. But um, back to the business, I know you you know you were having some success and didn't necessarily know the business, which is pretty common. Yeah. Um, but I know you worked with Kenny Gamble, and uh, what what'd you learn from him? Gamble uh, came to me at a time where I was really struggling uh, personally with what to do with my um, career. Should I be a writer? Should I be a producer? Um, Should I be an artist? And I also had a really big situation in my personal life. So I had a child and I thought it was my child, but it ended up not being my child. Mm. And the, the news of it not being my child was really devastating to me. It put me in like a depression. So he kind of got me and pulled me and allowed me to to heal mm-hmm. and at the same time he was telling me the importance of putting words to all the music because at that point in time we were just track makers James Poison and I we were just making beats and tracks and when artists came into town we let them write you know and we would comment and I would produce it or whatever but it was never really my perspective and and he was he was like look you have so much to offer this world that you have to have to put it out there from your own perspective mm-hmm. um, and the only challenge then was because I had not been developing myself as an artist, my vocals and things like that, it was like a period of going into understanding what that is. And that's where the underground music scene at the time was good for me because I could experiment mm-hmm. and just do stuff and it would work, you know, because that's what people wanted. Right. They, they were still yeah. hungry for unique things that fit into the, the space. Um, and they let us study their business. They let us study, me and my partners, all the contracts from back in the day, 
Uh, I mean, I'm amazed at how much money they made. Gambling, huh? I mean, those contracts at the time, they, they were the first production company to ever right? exist. Yeah. Wow. Uh, CBS started that concept. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of information there of being able to also study with the greatest writers ever. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, they had the most number ones. I think Babyface or somebody passed them since then. But, you know, Huff would come in and just slam the, the greatest uh, writers in history book on the table. He just bam and walk out, right? And we turn it over and it would say number one hit songs, Gambling Huff. Nice, All right? And then James and I would look at each other like, okay, so you can see yeah. what they're trying to say. You know, keep pushing. You know, aspire to be better than you are at all times. Uh, so how'd, how'd you meet up with Jay? Uh, when Jeff and I started A Touch of Jazz, um, the production company that built uh, Jill Scott and music and all those people, we, we were basically reaching out to all the musicians in the city to come in and play and stuff like that. And a group called Jeanne, you know, mm -hmm. Jeanne, yeah. they, were, they were at Temple at the time. And that was Hey Mr. DJ? Mm-hmm. We, because we didn't know the business, we didn't sign them, and they ended up going to Flavor Unit yeah. with Latifah and those guys. It was probably better for them because we didn't know what we were doing. So, <laughs> so uh, they brought James down. They actually kind of, it was a weird thing because James, they brought him down, and then they kind of were like, well, we're mad at him or something like that. It was some weird, you know, we're all kids. so Yeah. Some crazy petty stuff. and then But James lived around the corner from me okay. the whole time. And I didn't know it, mm. and we got to be really close. This is this is before the roots, right? The roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James, James, and I, we were in. We were basically the ones making all the music for a touch of jazz at mm -hmm. first, and then we broke off from a touch of jazz. <clears throat> Started to do our own thing, and um, we, you know, we were all trying to aspire to be gambling huff or. Uh, Jam and Lewis or whatever you know mm -hmm. that was the thing these teams mm -hmm. and when we broke off from a touch of jazz it became a little bit more like we're a, a team we work together but it, you know you're talented you can play keyboard all day work with whoever you want to work right. with I'm not going to hold you back I'm a producer I can produce anybody I want to be an artist you know let's let's find ourselves what we really love and so he was able to then uh, come in contact with that whole quote-unquote Soul Quarian squad 
mm-hmm. which they don't really like, but it is what it is, you know. Um, so, it, so having been uh, part of a, a duo, you know, songwriting, producing duo, and solo, is one better than the other? I don't like the individual thing as much. I'm I'm much happier in a room full of ten people and mm. we're making a song together. Okay. Because I don't always have the best idea, you know. Now, as it relates to editing and and programming, I love that aspect mm-hmm. of it. Like that's probably my favorite thing to do is mm. just sit somewhere with some headphones or in a studio like this and just kind of get lost in the randomness of my own creativity. But my favorite thing is the camaraderie, mm-hmm. you know, of uh, putting great musicians in a space. The process of an idea coming out of my head into their bodies and onto some type of recording device is mm-hmm. is just amazing, you know. To think that that can happen, yeah. You know, uh, you know, outside of it, just constantly evolving with technology is is a really challenging thing, and it keeps me on my toes, you know, because the machines are doing so much now. Sure, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like yeah. wow, you don't even know where to start sometimes. If half, one half the battle is just figuring out which one you want to try, you know. And then right. when you try it, you're in that for six months, and you find another one, and you're like, "Well, I thought this was the best. Now this is the best." So, it's it's pretty interesting what's yeah. going on. So, uh, you know, you you started out kind of with, you know, sounds like playing like funk and soul. And then I know hip hop was happening, and and obviously Philly has you know huge contributions to both of those. And then you know you ended up, you know more in, uh, you know I, I would call it somewhere between soul and and house, mm-hmm. which is um, musically very related, but you know culturally, especially around the world, right? Those things are sometimes worlds apart, mm-hmm. right? And and I think for me that's one of the really interesting things about house music is that there's kind of like white house and black house Mm -hmm. and people outside don't necessarily get that. Um, So, but I'm curious, you know, what was that transition like? And like, how did you, was it a conscious decision to go more in the dance music direction or, or like how'd that happen? I, um, I didn't know anything about that world at all. Uh, King Britt, uh, a fellow Philly DJ and um, creator of, interesting soundscapes um, used to do these parties in in downtown Philly um, like I said Philly was segregated mm-hmm. not just skin tone but culturally you know? right. and he was always one of those guys that hung in a, in the quote-unquote Benetton world before that was even even popular thing so one day I just happened to go to this bar for kids that don't know Benetton is like it's like H&M yeah only well, different well, you know, multicultural. I, just, I know they don't have it. That's right. We don't have no kids listening yeah, to the what, show Yeah, whatever anyway. the term just, is, multi, yeah. whatever that is. No, right? no, I get it. Um, it's that crossroads. Yeah. That was just, like, unusual, right. right, in Philly, you know? And I went in there, and he was like, dude, I got to talk to you. It's this amazing thing going on. You can put a record out and then travel the world. And I uh-huh. was like, what? What do you mean put a record out? You mean get signed to a major label? Because I was doing all this high-level major label stuff. Right. And... In, in meetings with executives and all this type of stuff, right? So that was that's the only thing I knew about the music business. Mm-hmm. He turned me on to the 12-inch vinyl hustle, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and the community, he plugged me into a community as well. What I didn't know was that 
some of the things that I had made were already bubbling mm. in these spaces at a high level, right? Um, and that 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 those people that spun house were also just fans and connoisseurs of music, so they would be aware of your name mm-hmm. or they're aware of your contributions. So then he and I started to experiment on some things, and he put a couple records out. On, we put some stuff out, out under this group called Scuba at the time, and um, got a lot of cool response. What was the first record? Damn, I can't remember what the first song, the Swell. Okay. Swell. Swell is the name of it. And actually, it was, this is a funny story. We were recording that record. The engineer was like, you know, this thing is all right. He'll he'll be better in 15 years. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I got so pissed, man. You know, I, was, I was like, damn. But, you know, truth be told, it was like some raggedy-ass demo that had a yeah. vibe. It had a good vibe. Like, it sounded as if it was Sting with a head cold or something. You know? <laughs> it, it, it was cool. Um, and in those, when I hear those early records, I cringe because those are always the things that somebody's like, this is amazing. I love this. And right. they play it. And you hear everything that's out of tune. Sure. You're like, oh, my God. What was that? Why didn't I do that over? You know what I'm saying? It's just nerve wracking. Um, and <clears throat> but that's kind of the point, right? That's the process. You yeah. have to go through it. But um, also, you know, we don't always understand why we respond to certain things right, as listeners. Yeah, I've always tried to because I like to overthink things. I've always tried to like decide that I like this kind of music because I like all different genres. Yeah. It's not that. So I've always been looking for that one common thread that tie but there isn't one yeah there's like you know i like some shitty pop record that i would never sign up for you know yeah. what i mean and then you know some hardcore hip-hop or some punk rock or whatever right like and those they have nothing in common yeah well i mean you also don't know as an artist what your sweet spot is yeah un- unless somebody responds to it or unless they hear it right so it's kind of a gift as a group to put a song out and then people say they like that track you know or they like that vocalist or whatever and then you start experimenting then the next thing i did was with louis vega who at that time the masters at work was the epitome of dance culture they had they had merged hard house beats with sexy soul tropical rhythm in in the world was just everybody was starting to imitate their flow right Mm -hmm. so i put a record on out with their label that was nothing like anything that they did so it stood out you know, this song Messages I did, and I even didn't call it myself. I called it Critical Point mm. featuring me. And that became a cult, cult record, Yeah, you know?
because I was like, I wanted to make house music, but at the same time, I couldn't get with the monotony mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the labels were all at that point trying to make us make Jill Scott music, Soul Child, the same thing over and over again. Sure. So I was getting monotony yeah. from the major label level, and then I was going into the house thing, and it was like, you know, 909 sounds. I was, it was driving me nuts. So I did this thing that was kind of syncopated and, and futuristic and had, you know, way before anybody was really doing um, these kind of backwards synths and all that type of stuff. And I put a song on it, a, mm-hmm. a kind of a small song. Mm-hmm. Then that made everybody want to come find me. You know, all the other producers, yeah, all the labels were starting to get hip to it. Giles Peterson on BBC. Um, then I made a song called Manhood, which was even another step up from that, a little bit more into the syncopation, house tempo, mm-hmm. and then that became another cult classic, you know? And then the bidding started to happen. Now bigger independent labels wanted to deal with me, and I started to deal with K7. K7 is like, we got this great idea. Mix this DJ, give us a mix, but give us four original songs or something like mm-hmm. that. And then I put Sensuality on top of it, and then that became like a, a radio hit in continental Europe mm-hmm. and I toured a lot um, and then I then the labels in the US started to bid now I got seduced by that to some degree I, I feel like that was my that wasn't the best thing to do I should have probably in retrospect done another deal with K7 and as an artist toured Europe mm-hmm. and learned how to be a great artist at that time where I did these deals in the States, I was still a studio file. And I wasn't able to communicate that to the the relatively ignorant United States market as this hybrid, this producer, DJ, singer. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't relate to that because Moby and all those other people that were coming out of the ele- electronica, so to speak, weren't that. Right. They were sound files, mm-hmm. but they knew how to bring that to a performance level. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. So they couldn't figure out what to do with me. And instead of being like, hey, we can't figure it out, they just kept stringing you along. So you end up being in these deals for two or three years, and it kind of puts the brakes on you, and then you right. start becoming disenchanted with the industry and all that kind of stuff. And then once you get to the point where those deals are over, now the industry is starting to shrink because of Napster yeah, and sure. all that stuff. Now, so now you're not getting that marketing money to, um, to break. Check this out. You know we're excited to have Casper Mattress as a sponsor on Rebel Radio. I think the bed is really dope, super comfortable. And the more I'm learning about the company, I think they're dope too. They're they're revolutionizing the mattress industry. Instead of going to the showroom and having to deal with salespeople and all their, uh, their hustle, you can just go online and order a mattress. It comes to your house in a, uh, they squish it down into like this tiny box so it's easy to carry, move around in your house or whatever, and um, and it's uh, super comfortable and, and it gets you a great night's sleep. They're winning all kind of awards. It was named one of the best inventions for last year by Time Magazine, and they're adding new products all the time, like now sheets and pillows. They have some crazy new pillow technology. I didn't even know there was pillow technology. I used to just sleep on a cardboard box. And now I'm I'm just sleeping all the way through the night. They ship free, and uh, you can try it in your home for 100 nights. If you don't like it, they'll pick it up. 
and give you a full refund. But you're probably going to like it. So for a guaranteed great night's sleep, choose the leader in the mattress revolution. That's real. Go to Casper.com, use the code RADIO, get $50 towards the purchase of your mattress just for listeners of Rebel Radio. That's Casper.com, use the code RADIO and get $50 off the purchase of your mattress. Casper.com, terms and conditions apply. So how do you, I mean, you know, it's pretty understandable, right? You kind of, people start throwing money at you and accolades and, you know, it's not, I don't think anyone would fault you for kind of buying into that. Yeah. Um, But in retrospect, if you're advising, you know, a a youngster coming up, like how does somebody keep their head on straight and stay focused on, on their mission in the face of all that? You just have to know. Do you love making music or do you love being famous? Hmm. And whichever one it is, be honest about it and shape your career that way, right? I love making music, but I I allowed the comfort of big checks to keep me from that. Sure. You know? So what would have pushed me further along is if I kept on making great stuff. And every time that somebody had an issue with me, I presented them more music and it mm-hmm. just got better and I got better and better to the point where it's undeniable. I think The Weeknd is an example of that. When I first heard his demos or his, his early records, I was like, I, I don't get this. This is weird. It's like out of tune singing. What the hell is the vibe, right? Mm-hmm. He, he kept on doing it and putting things out, building his fan base. And then on his second major label album, it's really good. It's literally great pop music, right? Yeah. So there was an evolution story there, mm-hmm. but they never stopped. He never stopped. Drake mm-hmm. never stops, right? They kept developing, kept kept building. A lot of people who are the new kids on the block do what I did, which is you grind because you love it, mm-hmm. and then when you get that check, you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, now, I'm good. I, I'm, yeah. I got it. The label's got me mm-hmm. now. Where no, the label is is a device. It's not the the heart of the operation you are you got to pump the blood into that device and you pump the power into it to make it operate and we we don't have enough examples of how to navigate that i mean i've I've, i don't want to put anybody on blast but i've seen quite a few artists in in the past five years who were the hot kids Mm -hmm. you know and everybody talked about them you know other stars give them the validation you know oh so and so is hot and they get a deal and then that's it yeah and then they're stuck you know, and then you're like, damn. I mean, a lot of times that record never comes out. Never. That was the hottest kid. Never comes you know? out. Or they have so many challenges trying to uh, get their unique perspective across once they go inside because the, the the companies are trying to force you into a particular type of box. Well, it's interesting. And, you, you, you know, you mentioned, like, perfectionism earlier. And I think, you know, if you look at what's happening in, like, the entrepreneurship and in the tech startup world especially right like you know there's a lot wrong with that but but you know one thing i think is really interesting is this whole idea of just make something shitty until you can make something good Mm -hmm. and put it out and let people react to it and then you'll find out from them what works yeah and you know musicians it's almost the opposite right it's like you know like said most if you get a hit it's usually your first record and then everything is downhill from yeah. there, you know, and there's this this sort of expectation that, 
you know, everything has to be perfect. And, you know, but if you look back in history, most of the great artists, the guys we're talking about that can go 20 years, their first record wasn't their great. First three albums or so were, right. were, were all over the place. Right. Yeah. And then they find their way as artists. And so, you know, you know, like you said, you maybe you can't do that in the major label context today because of the economics mm-hmm. aren't going to allow for that. But, you know, we're in an environment where the independent world is so has so much opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's it's an opportunity for everyone to um, to find themselves under their own terms. Yeah. If they're fearless enough to do that. That's a big part of it. You got to let your guard down and you have to, uh, you know, be ballsy. How do you stay fearless? Practice. You know, you got to. You got to go in there. Like, I'm not, I understand the idea of letting people hear things, but it still has to be at a certain point. Sure. Right? I know that I'm not going to get it right the first time I put something out. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm, but I'm not going to put the thing out where I haven't been singing for six months and, you yeah. know, I can't deliver the emotion and stuff like that. But now I'm moving to the point where I, I need to get away from it so I could evolve. Right. Cause you can, you can stay in your little, your cubby hole and like, uh, redo your own work forever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's like an endless cycle but now it's time for me to go ahead and 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 tell my story so I could have um, you know get more information to come in freely you know? so do you ever have that conversation with fans that's like you know here's something I'm I'm feeling or I'm working on and and I know it's not perfect no o- only because I, I trust my ability mm-hmm. to that when it's time to give to put something out there that's of a particular quality level, yeah. Okay. I'm not that much of a novice where I need to, uh, where I'm unsure. Sure. I'm very confident in myself. It's just making sure that I actually put the work in and deliver something good, right? So that's that's because I'm a producer first. So I can mm-hmm. I can optimistically listen to what I did and put it up against what's working now or what has worked in the past and say this isn't there yet, even on the sonic level. Yeah. And get it to that point, and then I'm cool with it. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm not really at the raw point. And that's that's part of why yeah. I don't really work with a lot of artists who don't know how to finish records. Sure. Because they'll put something out, and you're like, dude, that I just came to, to, to vibe on your track, and you made a song out of that? Right. <laughs> and you just yeah. let everybody hear it? Ugh. That's ridiculous, you know? <laughs> so that, so I, I, I'm, I'm very uh, careful with who I work with, because there's been some times where somebody put a song out and it, it, it ended up being really popular and I was like, no, I don't like how that sounds. Mm-hmm. You know? and, mm-hmm. I had, and it makes me cringe. Sure, you know? yeah. What, um, so, so, you know, I, I think it's an interesting turn um, that you ended up on the Master of the Mix, mm-hmm. right? So the uh, TV show yeah. sponsored by Smirnoff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like that seems like an unlikely fit for you given i mean i know you're a great dj yeah but uh but you know that feels like an odd choice it was an odd choice in the sense that the way that the show was presented to the public okay that's not how it was sold to me so the way it was sold to me is that it was supposed to be a uh a show that demonstrated the the lifestyle of different types of djs Mm. right so you had your old school hip hop DJs with Scratch. You had your um, battle DJ with 
with Revolution. Mm-hmm. You had um like um festival DJ with DJ Rap. You had um kind of a, a touring of an R and B backing touring DJ with DJ Mars, Jazzy Joyce, legendary hip hop artist, mm-hmm. and then you had me. Oh, you have Rich Medina, who's like a, a connoisseur's DJ, and then you had me, who was this um, soulful electronica global DJ. It was supposed to show how we live, the mm-hmm. things we do, a lot of stuff that we talked about today. Yeah. But when we got on the set, it was a battle. Right. Right? A literal battle. Yeah. It just so happened that I was a battle DJ. So the right. the wild card that they didn't expect yeah. was that I was going to be like, oh, okay, cool, and just jump right into that space because that's how I started. Now, right. I, was, I was nowhere near as sharp as I was when I was 14 years old. I haven't been cutting and scratching and, mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. But I had the mentality right. to, to do sure. that. So I was, I was unaffected by the pressure of 50 cameras and you know the pressure of doing this in three minutes. And I was confident that no matter what I was spinning, it was good. You know, I still had that kind of like, I don't care what you think. I'm dope. This right. is, that's how I live my life, right? Yeah. It's not like an ego thing. It's just like I believe in it because I work at it. And that was the narrative that they ran with. Like, you're supposed to be the, the, the sexy electronica guy with the supermodels and right. blah, 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 right? Yeah. And it kept trying to egg me on in that direction. But then every time it got a little edgy and street, I would I would fit into that so seamlessly that they were confused. Mm-hmm. Like even the, the producers, everybody, some of the, the creators of the show were my friends, and they were like, "Where did that come from? What's going on?" But if everybody sees you for fifteen years right. as this sure, thing, yeah, yeah, and then suddenly they don't really see. It's like being in a relationship with someone who you only see them, you know, in the evenings and it's romantic or what have you, and then you see them in in, in a situation where they're having an argument at a store and, and they want to fight the salesperson. You're like, <laughs> right. do I want to be involved with that woman? You yeah. know what I mean? It's kind of that vibe. That's how everybody looked at him. Like, oh my God, like, you're so hostile. And it wasn't that. It was just, I know what that energy is. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't go into a battle to be okay. You go in it to win. Yeah. You know? And if there's $250,000 on the table, you go to get it. It's as simple as of that, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the fascinating thing was after the season... They just wanted me to continue to be that person in everything that they did. So I was a host the second year mm-hmm. and up for a host to be the third year. But when I refused to be Colin, um, I mean, um, what's the one on, on the the mean one from the original? Oh, Simon Cow. When I refused to be that, yeah, then I wasn't as popular to them. I wasn't right. as important because they were looking for that. That right, angst. right, right, right. That's yeah. what they wanted me to be, and I didn't like how it felt to walk down the street and people not like me mm-hmm. because of a snapshot of an, a reactionary moment, okay? So if somebody punches you in the jaw, you're gonna smile? Mm-hmm. No, you're not gonna smile. You're gonna react, even the nicest person is gonna have a moment where they're like, you know? And if that if the cameras happen to be rolling and they're like, oh man, when he has a scowl, he's really, really hot. We can get ratings off of that, and they right. loop it and loop yeah, it and yeah, loop yeah, it. Sure. When you walk down the street with your, your kids and you're having a happy day, they, they look, that's the asshole dude, you know? And then because of the way people respond to reality TV, they think it's real. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. And they so treat did, you that way. So did that show, you know, did it change the game for you, in term, like, professionally? It, it added a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it added a level of 
respectability from from other entertainers. Mm-hmm. Um, once you make it to the, the the silver screen or the or the tiny screen, to a certain degree, you've made it. Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. it's so hard to be successful as a um, an actor or any kind of entertainer. Yeah, when you're a part of something that's really really high level. And we had our posters and billboards all across the United States, so people right. were like, they couldn't escape us. Mm-hmm. Like that was a, that was a really, really big marketing campaign. No doubt. Uh, it it really helped, and it, it also made my my other brands, my party gra- brand grow. Uh, which so is, did, so so let's talk about that because I know you have multiple party brands. Yeah. Right. Kiss and grind, textures. That's one. I mean, I've done. I have. Kiss and Grind is the main one. That's the the main other thing. ones are kind of come and go until okay. I figure out the direction of them. But okay. that's the main one. So, so you have that, in, you know, in addition to your your artist career. Yeah. Um, so does does the crowd change after the show? Do you start seeing different faces at the club? It expanded. Yeah. So the brand, the Kiss and Grind party brand, was so solid because we've been really meticulous in nurturing that for uh, at this point ten years of solid fun. Um, but then with the TV show and the expansion of the internet at the same time, there's evidence now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a conversation. You click yeah. on my name and then BTVH1 comes up or whatever, the association of other entertainers, pictures, blah, 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 blah. Okay, that starts to draw more people. Right. Other brands kind of want to support you while you're on TV. Okay, now it's an interesting look for me to partner with him sure. because Smirnoff is involved or whatever. Um, and I subtly use that to my advantage whereas i did i never wanted to sell out to a brand because i don't want to be left if they decide to change course right so um i always made sure that kiss and grind was growing 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 now it's growing to the point where i want to turn that into a festival experience Mm -hmm. um because i recognize the importance of what it represents to the person that wants to have fun and keep growing that but at the same time i don't want it to be underwritten where um, so-and-so can say, well, we financed it, and this is our, our, our great global campaign, blah, 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 blah. And then you start getting into that, I want to do 10 major markets around the universe every year under this person's dollar, and a new chairman comes in and says, we're not doing that anymore. Right. Ah, that's my biggest nightmare. Yeah. You know? So so tell, tell me, explain the Kiss and Grind brand, and how do you manage that separately from your personal brand? So the Kiss and Grind concept was born out of a a need in Los Angeles to have um, you have all these amazing people here a lot of amazing events but no fun Mm. at any of them and when I first moved to LA the thing that I was most fascinated by is like the 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 truth behind um, release parties and stuff like that where there's this picture like this was this amazing party and you have all these celebrities right. that were there, right? Yeah. But when you start to go to those parties, you realize that those celebrities were there at 6.30, which was three hours before the party started. And I, and I was really fascinated. Like, how could yeah. that... What kind of party is this exactly? So the celebrities come and take a picture at 6.30, then they leave. Mm-hmm. Then the people are in there drunk, but they're not dancing, but the photographer's present it to the rest of the world like it's this amazing experience but then when you finally go there you're like this is whack this movie premiere is awful i can't wait to get out of here right so i wanted to create something that was really fun with those same people and didn't have to be pretentious it was a basement party with with a red light an old school fire light 
and it was in the b- bottom of an art gallery, so you could be upstairs having a conversation, actually, mm-hmm. or you could be downstairs partying, doing whatever you wanted, you know, gay, straight, bisexual, you know, you want to get half naked, it was there for you. Um, it became a, 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 a destination point every month. Then we started to move it around, text only kind of thing, no mm-hmm. flyer, none mm-hmm. of that, like, and it became so important to people and we never had a flop. So one of the things that I've been doing probably is a long time. You always have a bad night mm-hmm. at some point in time. Mm-hmm. We have never had a bad night in 10 years. I've never had a flop party. That, that's wow. an amazing thing. That's amazing. Yeah. It only gets, it fluctuates sometimes based on the popularity of a guest, mm-hmm. but it is never like nobody's there. Or we took a loss or something yeah. like that. And, you know, because we're in L.A., it, it doesn't rain. Right. So that helps. Yeah. Um, have but you had a favorite night at Kiss and Grind? I have. It was it was a long time ago where we took over a, um, a pop-up art gallery in the warehouse district at, like, 20th and Alameda or something mm. like that. It was on the fourth floor. Oh, wow. It was... Um, That's cool. They had, they had 20-foot pieces of art. <laughs> and they, they had like a golf cart that they turned into a magic carpet and a wall of TV screens and all this kind of crazy stuff. And we put um, black lights in the hallway so you could mm-hmm. walk up the four floors. But it's kind of like a scene from a, a gangster movie or like, I don't know, like a crack house film mm-hmm. or something like that. Graffiti on the walls, bo- yeah. broken bottles and everything. So you had That's ladies cool. going in hills up to that and they go into this giant art gallery and everybody was blown away. That mm-hmm. was that was one of my favorite That's nights. Cool. Prince was there, and it was really dope. Nice. But, yeah, so, you know, that's the premise combined with um, music from the soul diaspora. So soul, R&B, hip-hop, um, salsa, samba, deep house, um, anything that has is rooted in that. It was less hip-hop before. It was, it was actually no hip-hop at first. Mm. It was rare groove, and I designed it to be... Uh, a little bit more focused on the mo- the modern soul acts, so Usher, mm-hmm. music, um, you know, all the bad boy soul artists. That's that was the the core soundtrack. Okay. Then we would dip into soul and funk a little bit, but it wasn't <clears throat> exclusively that. We tried to stay away from the obvious. Try to stay from Michael Jackson and Prince. I still don't play a lot of Prince in, in MJ because of that. You mm-hmm. know, like. I think there's just so much music that's great to always rely on the same three or four songs is is it's like cheapening the whole process. Sure. Um, but um, then it evolved and we start having guests and starting to hear their perspectives and the crowd will grow. grow. You you borrow some of their fans, um, and now we're just getting to the point where we're making it more experiential, where we want you to come in not just to party, but the next level is to to put some performance on it or. Mm to put um, another, go back to the kind of art gallery combination, but in in an innovative way, Yeah, you know, to to lock the social thing. A lot of people got their girlfriends out of it or whatever, and boyfriends, Mm -hmm. it was good or bad stories coming out of it. And that's that's what makes me happy when when it has a purpose outside of just the party. Yeah, And, you know, we did a Michael Jackson tribute with Questlove last year. We got 5,000 people at Grand Park one week of promotion or something like that yeah and at that point we were like alright we have something yeah. you know let's 
let's build it. And it was we, it was a, a all day affair, so we could have kids out there. So it was people from two to seventy out there. I don't think it was that old, but mm-hmm. probably like two to forty five or whatever is the yeah. average thing. So that was that was great to to see that happen. Um, and I'm just looking forward to expanding it more, taking it across the country and trying to deliver the same type of feeling to people. So it doesn't really match my artist career. Okay. Right? So that's the inner city Philly boy mm-hmm. thing. That's very natural to me. But I personally enjoy the global thing, which is everything is new. I like that. I like to go into a place where the people party just as hard as they do at Kiss and Grind to things they never heard before. Mm-hmm. To me, that's been my career. You go to, somebody pays you $10,000 to fly to their their city, you show up, if you play the same thing that the other people are playing, they're mad. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, why are you doing that? Why are you playing stuff on the radio? That's not why I'm here. Let me hear you. So I'm looking to rebuild that here as well. Is that more of a global thing or do you find, is there a lot of that in the U.S. too where audiences are looking to be challenged and find <laughs> stuff that they're not hearing everywhere else? They're, they are looking, but the way you get to them is different. You almost have to build your own following. You yeah. Have to, yeah, you have to nurture that. You have, yeah. to, have to start small and, or you have to be connected to these different pockets of, uh, of um, crews mm-hmm. that, that do that kind of thing. You know, I, a great example is the selection team where you know, all those people that came out of that Carmack and um, uh, uh, well, yeah, Joe K as a as a presenter, but mm-hmm. there's producers, a lot of producers and artists mm-hmm. that have come out of it. That's an extension of um, that movement, you know, and the way that they got to their people was unusual. Yeah. You know what I mean? So finding that what that is for the next group of people is probably going to be a combination of creating events and, and creating portals for people to come mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. and being willing to be the person who's stepping out in front of it and saying, this is what I mean. I tried to get all my, my contemporaries to do this years ago, you know, Jazzanova and Four Hero. Mm-hmm. But that that type of person was shy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit like that, too, where I'm not instinctively the person who wants to show off or, or put their neck out there, I do it as a as like a necessity. But I'm much more comfortable letting my work speak, yeah? Um, but to push it forward, you have to work a little harder mm-hmm. to, to, um, sure. to get the attention, you know, and figure out what that is. And so for me, it's like a, it's gonna be a multimedia thing. I'm doing a lot of fine art photography projects to match the releases and nice. getting into making short films and participating more in the film business, creating that synergy so that the conversation is coming from all angles, mm-hmm. not just a nightlife experience or not just a song. It's a lifestyle perspective that I want to sell, that I now want to show people the James Bond lifestyle uh-huh. that I've been living. Like, yeah. b- before I wanted to keep it to myself. Like, right. this is mine, and, you know, you can ask me all those questions, but I'm not telling you anything. <laughs> you know? And is that, um, did somebody teach you that, or did you, like, how did you... How'd you make that transition? I've been studying. Yeah. You got to study. When I started to be a producer, we bought albums. I bought, I mean, I was right. a DJ, yeah. but I would study, yeah. you know? And but, but was it like a, you know, was there a moment of decision? Or yeah. was it more of a gradual thing that you look back and go, oh, okay, I see where, I see that There was, a, there, it was, I was, I was starting to become restless. Um, and 
I, I felt a little displaced, but I always felt displaced. But then I, then I started to feel really restless around the time that Disclosure started to come on the scene. And then when I heard Disclosure, I was like, that's us all day. Like, yeah. you know, no disrespect to them, but they did nothing new. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, one, one of the things that they did was they put pop sensibility mm-hmm. on the Sonics, right? But mm-hmm. in terms of the Sonics, I I even called some of the legends of that movement and say, what have you been doing? Have you heard this group? Have yeah. you heard this sound? Yeah. Like, this is Detroit. This is so Detroit, I can't even believe it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And they would all say, yeah, but I don't mess with that new stuff. And it, it's always right. that vibe, right? But I was never that dude. I was like, okay, you guys are slipping. You're tripping and you're yeah. slipping, you know? And then next thing you know, you have, you know, Detroit Swindle and Kate Trinata and all mm-hmm. these other people that are kind of in that same pocket with their own spin. Yeah. And I was like, what am I doing? This is it. I'm still yeah. here. Yeah. Hey, let's get going. But yeah. instead of just doing whatever and jumping out there, I decided to study what do you do with it once you make it? And I think that's a bigger issue mm-hmm. now than just making it. Sure. And <clears throat> volume is the thing that I feel the young person, the young creator is winning at. They're, yeah. they, no doubt. They put stuff out relentlessly. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it helps them increase their base so fast because there's no year wait. Yeah. There's yeah. no six-month wait. Right. It's like every Tuesday or Keep something like that. Yeah. And that's what you have to do. Is sometimes if you, if you have a busy life, if you have kids, you have this other kind of stuff, you got to kind of set that up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ahead of time is a little bit of guessing. Yeah. Uh, but I believe that once you get it going, then everybody starts to support you and get involved, and you can do collaborations, and it starts to expand. Um, so I mean that's that's my vision of what I think it's going to take to to reengage that community and also connect the the people that still exist that love it with a new audience. You know, that's great. Who don't know anything about it. Nice. Uh, my last question: um, Who's your favorite DJ of all time? I, I really don't have one, just because I like so many different styles and so many um, forms of music. So, so let me ask it a different way. Um, pick a, a performance you've seen, you know, live DJ performance that stands out in memory. I mean, I'm I'm a little biased because I'm talking about from a hip hop perspective. I saw Jazzy Jeff when he was just a teenager. So the level of energy and the velocity that he would scratch and cut has always been amazing to me. Yeah. Because no one else, unless you were in Philly, in West Philly, in those house parties and basements, will ever see that again. Mm-hmm. Because he would leave a bucket of sweat on the ground and everyone was amazed, right? So I'm, I'm amazed at the just the, the precision and the sound. Jeff was always that person where you just had to say, wow. Even as a little kid, I was into that. But then there are selectors. Like I am always impressed by people who have a deep collection of music. So mm-hmm. Giles Peterson is a person who I don't think he's a technically solid mm-hmm. DJ per se. Mm-hmm. But what he does is he sequences these songs that have these amazing intros and all these different kinds of things. And he takes you on his musical journey. And I don't even know any of the songs ever. Right. 
and I think that's a whole another kind of skill. I'm impressed with that from from a collector's perspective, you know. But there's so many DJs. It's, it's difficult to to pick any any one um, that impresses me over and over again because I'm such a fan of what they all do. And it sure. and really, it, it's the ones who pay attention to the people. Yeah. And give the people exactly what they want, whether it be deep house or or techno or whatever. You know, if you're good, you're good, and and I like it. Yeah. Victor, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate thanks, it. Thanks for having Dude's me. Those great stories. Yeah. <laughs> so dope. They're copywritten. Yeah, that's Coming right. Coming out for the movie. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> nice. Yeah, thanks, man. That was, that's good. Uh, uh, you had some surprises in there. That Try not to expecting. date myself. Nah, nah. That was, that's good stuff. I'm only 32. That's right. Frozen. <laughs> Where you can find me? Like, my house? I'm not giving my address. No. No, I was just playing. Uh, my, Social security number. My, uh, what are my handles? My Twitter is at Duplay, D-U-P-L-A-I-X, and my Instagram is my whole name, Victor Duplay, V-I-K-T-E-R-D-U-P-L-A-I-X, and Facebook is the same. And if you want to find Kiss and Grind online? Kiss and Grind is a little more mysterious. There is definitely a Kiss and Grind page, Facebook page. Uh, the Instagram is a little underused, underutilized at the moment, but we're going to change that. So, um, so find it on Facebook? Facebook is probably the best thing. Uh, we're going to be doing the official after party to the Roots Picnic June uh, with me, Jazzy Jeff, and Questlove. So that's going to be a oh, nice. pretty big event. Okay, I'm coming Philly. to that. Yeah. Um, that's going to be fun. Yeah. So, and special guests. Uh, and we're going to do a tribute with Earth, Wind & Fire. We were supposed to do it this past Friday, but unfortunately, Maurice White passed, so we're moving it March, April, still trying to figure out the date. Um, a special hybrid show where they are going to perform with me. Nice. Um, so that's going to be interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, if you like to dance, come to Kiss and Grind. Anytime. It's, it's an amazing experience. Yeah, it's fun. Dope. Yeah, cool. Oh, uh, yeah, that was my man, Victor Duplay. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, if you did, make sure you go back and listen to last week's episode, Victor Duplay Part 1. Make sure you hit us up on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net or on our Facebook page. And leave us a review on iTunes. Make sure you hit those five stars. Most importantly, buy a mattress from Casper.com and sign up at LegalZoom.com. Support our sponsors that are supporting our show. And last but not least, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. My guest will be the very funny comedian Brandon Wardell. We out. <laughs>